turn in the Word of God to the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. And I turned and lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot, grizzled and bay horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. The black horses, which are therein, go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them, and the grizzled go forth toward the south country, and the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Then cried he upon me, and spake unto me, saying, Behold, These that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even of Haldai, of Tobijah, and of Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then take silver and gold and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of, this, out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. And the crowns shall be to Helam, and to Tobijah, and to Jediah, and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they that are far off shall uh, shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. We read that far. The text we consider in this chapter is verses 12 and 13, where God says to Zechariah, And speak unto them, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, And he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both.
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Zechariah was a prophet who was a contemporary of Haggai, which means that he lived at the same time as Haggai, the prophet we considered last time in this series on the Minor Prophets. Haggai and Zechariah were close colleagues in the ministry, you might say, who lived in Jerusalem in the time after the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon. And it was during the time of King Darius of Persia that Haggai and Zechariah both were raised up by the Lord to prophesy to his people. These were the days when the Jews were rebuilding the temple of the Lord that had been smashed and burned by the Babylonians. Maybe you recall from the sermon on Haggai that during the time of the rebuilding of the temple, there were enemies that attacked the Jews and frustrated their work and brought it to a grinding halt. And it remained in that unfinished state for many years so that the Jews became comfortable eventually and turned their attention to their own houses. But God raised up Haggai and Zechariah at the same time in order to awaken his people from their spiritual slumber and to embolden them to continue the work of building the temple, even in the face of opposition. God gave to Zechariah his word in the form of many fascinating visions which you can find in the first six chapters of this book. Vision after vision after vision with interesting symbolism, which was intended to encourage the people of God in those times, with all that opposition, with all that pressure, to keep building the temple of the Lord. Then we come to chapter 6, and here we find a brief story or narrative, and our text is a part of that narrative. At one point, God told Zechariah to take silver and gold from certain men whose names are given in the chapter who had recently come back from Babylon with this pile of silver and gold. He told Zechariah to take some of that silver and gold, or maybe all of it, and to make a crown or perhaps crowns. Some people explain the plural crowns in the passage to mean that it was a double crown. It was an especially extravagant crown made of silver and gold. I will take the view that he actually made two crowns, one out of silver and one out of gold. And he was to take these crowns and go into the house of a man named Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, and place the crowns on the head of Joshua the high priest. Now, you might remember that in these days, the two leaders were Zerubbabel, who was in the line of David, and Joshua the high priest from the house of Aaron. Joshua and Zerubbabel were the leaders. He was to take these two crowns and place them on the head of Joshua the high priest and then speak the words that we find in our text and that I call your attention to. Behold, the man whose name is Branch, and he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, 
and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. Let's consider the branch who will come and build God's temple. Notice, first of all, the man whose name is the branch. Secondly, his building of the temple of Jehovah. And finally, his sitting as priest king on his throne. In our text, we read that the Lord told Zechariah to speak this word in the house that day when he crowned the priest as if he was a king. This is what you are to say. Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place. Behold, Zechariah is supposed to say. And that word behold in the scriptures often indicates that God wants us to pay attention. Zechariah was saying to all the people in the house, Behold, pay attention. This is very important what I'm about to say. And God says that same word to us today here in his house. Behold, people of God, pay attention to what God says in the text. And when Zechariah said, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, no doubt the men in the house must have cast their eyes upon Joshua the high priest because Zechariah had just placed those two crowns on his head. Behold the man whose name is the branch. There stands Joshua, or there he sits, crowned as if he is a king. Now Zechariah and the men in the house and the people of God in those days were familiar with this term, the branch. They had heard that before. They had heard that from other prophets that had come before Zechariah. In fact, Zechariah himself had spoken of the coming of a branch already in chapter 3, verse 8. There we read this, that Zechariah was supposed to say to Joshua, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. But even prior to Zechariah, even before the captivity, the prophet Jeremiah had spoken of a man whose name is the branch. For example, in Jeremiah 23, he prophesied, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And then Jeremiah prophesied of the branch again in chapter 33. But this man whose name is the branch has been prophesied even prior to Jeremiah. You can go all the way back to Isaiah the prophet. And he prophesied in chapter 11 verse 1, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Later, Isaiah would prophesy in chapter 53, verses 1 and 2, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
But now hundreds of years have passed. The Jews have gone into captivity. They've come back from captivity. And now Zechariah stands there and says to the men in the house, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now the idea of this prophecy is not that this man, whoever he might be, would have a personal name of the branch. So that when he was born, his parents gave him the name Branch, and throughout his life, all of his friends and family called him Branch as if that was his name. That's not the idea. But the idea is that this name, Branch, reveals something significant about the character and work of this individual. Something about his character, something about his coming, something about his work is captured in that name, branch. But now we have to understand what that word means. Because when we hear the English word branch, probably if you're like me, you think of a huge oak tree or maple tree with a thick, sturdy trunk. And then coming off of the trunk are these thick branches, powerful, strong, sturdy branches, thick branches that can hold up a tremendous amount of weight. That's not the idea of the word in our text. When you look at the Hebrew word, you could translate that a sprout or a shoot, as we have heard before. The word here really refers to a tiny, thin, tender, fragile little plant that pokes up from the ground. Perhaps, if you imagine a tree, those little saplings that grow up around the tree. Or if you imagine a tree that's been cut down, and now out of the stump, there are little tender shoots coming up. That's the idea of the word. These little tender shoots or sprouts are usually of no account. They usually come to nothing. Usually they are considered unattractive, so you have to take the pruners and cut them down and remove them from the base of your tree to make the tree look nice. That was true then as it is today. These little sprouts and shoots are despised and rejected of men. They are cut down. They are unwanted. Now Zechariah stands in the house, putting the crowns on Joshua and says, Behold the man whose name is the sprout, the shoot, the tender plant, the root out of a dry ground. Now as Joshua received those crowns, he was the high priest, he was a leader, he was educated, he knew the scriptures, he knew Zechariah was not referring ultimately to him. He knew that he could not be and was not the man whose name was the branch. But at the most, what Zechariah meant was that Joshua was standing there as a type and a shadow pointing forward to this man whose name would be the branch. And Joshua knew that because he knew the prophecies of Scripture. He knew that this branch was supposed to come out of the stem of Jesse, the stump of Jesse. This branch was supposed to come up in the house of David. This branch was supposed to be a king to rule and prosper and bring salvation. But he wasn't a king. He was a priest. 
He was from the tribe of Levi, the house of Aaron. So Zechariah must have meant, God must have meant, that Joshua was somehow a type and a shadow pointing forward to the true branch, and indeed he was. Joshua was a type of the coming branch because like the coming branch, Joshua was just a weak, tender, fragile, despised man and leader in Israel. He had no power and no strength in those days of the mighty Persian Empire, which was like an ocean that surrounded little Judah and little Jerusalem. Joshua, one of the leaders of this little remnant, this little flock of people struggling to build their temple, he didn't amount to anything. He wasn't going to come to anything in the eyes of men. Indeed, the enemies of Israel wanted to cut him down. They wanted to do away with him and Zerubbabel and put an end to this temple building. And yet, God sent Zechariah and Haggai to encourage Zerubbabel and also Joshua, the leaders, as they struggled to build the temple of the Lord. Behold the man whose name is Branch. He's weak and despised in the eyes of men, but I will build up my temple through him. But Joshua was nothing more than a faint type and shadow of the true man whose name is Branch, who was to come. And Zechariah knew, and Joshua knew, and everyone knew that it was a reference to the Messiah. It was a reference to the coming Savior who had been prophesied since the ancient times, now prophesied again under this name of Branch, this familiar name. The people of God were given to understand that they should look for a Messiah who was like a tender, fragile, weak sprout, despised in the eyes of men, rejected of men, and cut down by men. They were to look for a leader who would rise up out of the once great tribe of Judah, the once great house of David that had been cut down through captivity, through Assyrians and Romans and Persians, so that now the house of David was nothing more than a stump of a cut-down tree in the midst of the forest of empires in the world. There's mighty Assyria, there's mighty Babylon, there's Persia, and soon Greece and Rome, and where is Israel? Just a little stump with a little shoot coming out of it, and nothing more, despised, weak. He was to spring up, Zechariah says, out of his place, out of his place, that is, out of Judah, out of the house of David, and from the little town of Bethlehem, because they knew that too. They knew the prophecy of Micah, that out of Bethlehem Ephrathah, this ruler would come forth in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And my privilege as a preacher of the gospel in the New Testament is to declare to you, beloved, behold the man whose name is the branch. He was in the form of God, and he demonstrated that he is God by the wondrous works that he did, the mighty signs and wonders and miracles. But he humbled himself, 
and took on the form of a servant and was made and born in the likeness of men. He was born in the little town of Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary espoused to a man named Joseph, both of whom came from lines that connected back to David. And yet, when he was born in Bethlehem, there was no room for them in the inn. So he was born among the cattle and the other animals of Bethlehem, and he was wrapped in these swaddling rags and laid in the filthy manger where the animals had been eating their food. He grew up in Nazareth, that everybody knew was a backward region of Israel and a backward town. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And yet, in insignificant, unimportant, backward Nazareth, that's where he grew up. That's where he sprang forth. And from Bethlehem, he walked the path of suffering. He walked a path of humiliation, being despised and rejected of men at every turn. Whenever he preached the truth, as it really is, then they rejected him and they followed him no more. When he preached that he was a king, but not the kind of king they were looking for, that he was a sprout king, that he was a king who would come in lowliness and weakness and in the way of suffering and death, then they turned away from him and wanted nothing to do with him. He had no form or comeliness. He had no beauty that he should be desired. He was despised and rejected of men. But he became a sprout, not involuntarily. He was not so weak and tender and fragile just because that's the way he was. He was in the form of God, but he humbled himself. He willingly became a sprout. He lowered himself to become nothing but a tender little shoot out of the stump of David. And he walked that path of suffering and obedience to his Father in heaven, all the way, all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the Praetorium, to Pontius Pilate, who then crowned him not with silver and gold, but with thorns, and who had his back scourged with the bloody whip by his cruel soldiers, and who then brought him forth to the Jews and said, Behold, the man, the branch. But when Pontius Pilate presented the branch to the people, what did they say? Cut him down. Cut him down. Crucify him. Crucify him. And so the man whose name is the branch laid down his life on the cross. And why did he walk that path, that lowly path of suffering that ended in the crowning of thorns and the piercing of nails? and the giving of his life on the cross. Because, as Isaiah also prophesied, he carried our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, so that with his stripes we must be healed. He gave himself to the cross to save us from our sins, to bring salvation and victory and life eternal and to build up the spiritual temple of Jehovah and rule upon his throne forever. And he calls us to follow him. That little tender branch, that little sprout, he says, if you would be my disciple, 
then you will deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You will humble yourself and become as a little child, just like I did. You will not be great in this world. You will not be rich and powerful. You will humble yourself like me, and you will follow me, and you will walk the path of suffering. Not for your sins, because I did that already. But you will walk the path of suffering as an honor and a privilege, and I will reward you for that suffering. One of his apostles would write, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due season. Cast your cares upon him, for he careth for you. In the second place, Zechariah prophesies in the text that this man whose name is the branch, who is going to grow up out of his place, is going to build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. And of course, you know, this was the great issue of the day in the time of Zechariah. The great issue of the day was what about the temple? The temple had been destroyed. Remember, the temple was the heart and the center of the worship of God in the Old Testament from Solomon onward. But it had been destroyed, burned. It was a pile of rubble. And yes, Cyrus the Great, the great king of Persia, issued a decree, sent the Jews back to Jerusalem, told them to rebuild the temple, gave them supplies and resources, and they went to town building that temple. They laid the foundation. But then enemies came and frustrated them and got in their way and bothered them and thwarted them. They got discouraged. They stopped building. They became spiritually lazy. They started to focus on their personal lives. And years went by. And God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to stir them, to awaken them out of this slumber, to embolden them, to get back to work. Build the temple. Build the temple. And God sovereignly ruled over Darius, one of the next kings of Persia after Cyrus. And he authorized the rebuilding of the temple. What a day of celebration that must have been. Now again we can get busy. And Zerubbabel and Joshua stood up, and the people stood up, and they took up their hammers and their saws, and they picked up their bricks, and they started to build the walls of the temple again. And that is the context of our text. They were in the very middle of that project. They had finished the foundation. They were starting to build up the walls, but they weren't finished yet. It wouldn't be finished for a couple more years. So right in the middle of that project of rebuilding the temple, they're still facing temptations, discouragements, and opposition. And then the Lord raises up Zechariah to give this prophecy. Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Don't look here at your own strength. Don't look at your own power. You don't have the strength to do it. Go back and read Zechariah 4 later tonight. The vision of the candlestick and the two olive trees on both sides crushing their olives into oil and pouring it through these two tubes into the candlestick to to lighten it. And the angel says to Zechariah, the meaning of this vision is that it's not by might or by power, but by my spirit that you will build that temple. You can't do it of your own strength. 
Behold the man whose name is the branch. Keep your eyes on the coming Messiah and build in his strength and in his confidence and get back to work. And so they worked and they worked and they kept working. And these prophets encouraged them that God would help them to finish the building of the temple. But Joshua was only a type of the coming branch, the coming Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, when he came, of course, we know he went up many times into the temple. And on one of those occasions early in his ministry, Jesus stood in the temple. By the time of Jesus, the temple had long been finished. It was finished only a couple of years after this prophecy of our text. And the temple stood there, decade after decade, age after age. Sometimes it went into ruin a bit. And then Herod the Great repaired it and restored it. And now Jesus stands in that temple and he says to the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they murmured against him. It took us years and years to build this temple and you're going to build it up in three days? But John tells us in John 2, he was talking about the temple of his body. And after his resurrection, the disciples understood what he meant by that saying when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was talking about the fact that this temple was also a type of him, of his body. His body was the reality of the temple. After all, the temple was God's house in which God dwelt in the midst of his people. And what is Christ but God himself come into the human flesh to dwell in the midst of his people. The body of Christ was the reality of that temple. And so Jesus said, destroy this temple, my body. I'll raise it up in three days. And that's exactly what happened. Psalm 118 says, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. Jesus gave himself to be that stone, despised and refused and rejected by the temple builders when they crucified him on the cross. That's when they tore down their own temple, when they crucified their own Savior, the branch. But when he became that stone, despised and rejected of men, he completed the building of the temple in his resurrection. On the third day, he raised himself up from the dead. And in that time, he built the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord also points to the mystical body of Christ, the church. Not only his physical human body, which was destroyed on the cross and then raised up in the resurrection, but the temple also points to the church, which is his body. The church is the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Ye are the temple of the living God. And he said to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 2, You are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. 
And Peter said to the saints scattered throughout the world, 1 Peter 2, that they were as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecy of our text. He is the branch, long awaited, long promised, and he has fulfilled the promise of building up the temple of the Lord. He built it up in his death and resurrection, and he has been building it up and continues to build it up today through his word and spirit. It's not by the ingenuity, the eloquence, and the power of preachers that the church is built. Christ uses preachers to build up his church, but Christ is always the one who builds the temple, the church of the living God. Because if he does not work through the preaching, then nothing is going to be built up. But when Christ works through the preaching by his Spirit, he works faith in the hearts of his elect. He draws them out of darkness, out of unbelief, and out of sin. And he takes each one of those elect people like a little stone or brick, a living stone, and he puts us into the temple. He puts us into our place in perfect relation to all the other bricks and all the other stones. Each of us has our own place in the temple of God. And Jesus puts us there through his word and spirit. He will continue to do that until he comes again. That's what he's doing right now. If you ask, why doesn't the end of the world come? What is he waiting for? Well, he's not waiting for anything. He's building the temple. He's building it brick by brick. And there are still some bricks that have to be put into that temple yet. And until the very last brick has been put into its place, history will continue. But when it is put into place, then the Son of Man will appear on the clouds of glory with his angels, because then the temple will be finished. Zechariah says, the branch will build this temple. Notice how he emphasizes, he, even he, will build the temple of the Lord. That's why he also says, and he will bear the glory. Preachers do not get the glory for the building up of the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, the apostles who would become the foundation of the church, he said to them, upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build it up. And therefore, he receives the glory. And that's as it should be. He is the one who came down from his heavenly splendor and became a sprout. A little shoot of no account for us. Humbled himself to be despised, rejected, and cut down by men on the cross. He did that for us. Therefore, it is completely appropriate that he should bear the glory, all of the glory. He who was so humiliated is so exalted and receives a name above all names so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess he is Lord and King. 
that's an encouragement to us too. Because as we live our lives in this world, we're like Joshua and Zerubbabel and all the Jews, the people of God in those days. We're, we're busy. We're working. We're building. We're always building something. And if we're Christians, we're building spiritually. We're building the Christian life that God calls us to live. We're, we're building a Christian family, striving to raise our children in the fear of the Lord, these little precious bricks. We're, we're building up the church through missions, through evangelism, through catechism, through preaching and sacraments and worship. And yet we're opposed by enemies all the time. And we live in a hostile world that hates us. And so to know the encouragement of the Lord that we who make ourselves little sprouts following the great branch will be exalted in due time. Romans 8 verse 17 The Apostle Paul says that we must suffer together with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. And that's the promise of God that encourages us in our lives. We will also be crowned with Christ after we finish running our race. Finally, Zechariah prophesies that he shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is an amazing prophecy. Remember, Zechariah has just taken these two crowns, silver and gold, and placed them on the head of Joshua, the high priest, not the king. Joshua was in the line of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, and the priests did have a certain headgear. It was called a mitre. But priests did not wear crowns. The kings wore crowns. So why is he placing crowns on the head of the priest? Why not on the head of Zerubbabel, who was in the line of David? There's a reason for that. Because this is a prophecy that the coming Messiah will be a priest and a king. A king and a priest. When Joshua received those crowns, he knew that this did not mean that from this point on he was the king of Israel. He knew that. He knew that that was utterly forbidden. Because in the Old Testament in Israel, the kings must never usurp the office of the priests, and the priests must never try to usurp the office of the king. They were to be kept separate. They were separate offices. You might have a king who was a prophet, You might have a priest who is a prophet, but you would never have a priest who is also a king. King Uzziah tried that once. He tried to offer sacrifices in the temple, and he became a leper. King Saul tried to offer up a sacrifice, and he was rejected. God said, no, priests are priests, kings are kings, and Joshua knew that. Therefore, Joshua understood that he was only functioning as a type He was a priest, but wearing these crowns. He was a type of the branch. He, and he alone, would be a king and a priest. No doubt Joshua knew the prophecy of Psalm 110, which David wrote long before, when David said about the coming Messiah, who would be a king, that he would also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek.
The Jews knew the story of Melchizedek. Long before the history of Israel as a nation, there was this mysterious figure in the days of Abraham named Melchizedek, the ruler of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. He was a king and a priest at the same time. This prophecy of our text stands in the same line as that text. It points forward to the Messiah as priest and king all at once. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is our only high priest, like Joshua, the fulfillment of Joshua. But Jesus did not offer sacrifices of animals. He offered up himself as a once and for all sacrifice on the cross. But he is also our king, who came to rule over us by his word and spirit and preserve us and guide us in the faith until we are brought into the kingdom of heaven. Priest and king in one person. And that's the meaning of the last phrase of the text. The counsel of peace shall be between them both. Some commentators and theologians think that this is a prophecy or a revelation of a covenant between the Father and the Son within the Trinity. That the Father has made a covenant with the Son, and that's the counsel of peace. That the Father's covenant with the Son was a pact with a condition. The Father said to the Son, If you will go into the world and become a man and redeem my people and bring peace, then I will exalt you and glorify you. That is far-fetched to say the least. And not least of the problem with that is the faulty view of the covenant, which as we saw this morning, the covenant within the Trinity is not a pact between the Father and the Son. The covenant in the Trinity is a relationship between the Father and the Son of intimate fellowship as a family. The text is not speaking about the so-called pactum salutis, the the pact between the Father and Son and the Trinity. There is no such pact. The text is speaking about the union of the two offices of priest and king. That's the context. Two crowns, a priest and a king, united in one person, the counsel of peace shall be between them both. The idea is that whereas throughout the history of Israel, The priests and the kings were often in conflict with each other, struggling with each other, power struggles, spiritual struggles. Sometimes the priests were godly and the kings were ungodly, sometimes vice versa. In the branch, there will be perfect peace between the king and the priest forever. A council of peace. So that the king will give counsel to the priest and the priest will give counsel to the king and there will be perfect peace and harmony between them. Why? Because there will be one in the one person of Christ. What an amazing and comforting prophecy that is. Comforting to them and comforting to us. And it should move us to bow the knee because this prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus. He is our priest and king and the council of peace 
is between these two offices in Jesus, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks to Thee. We give praise to Thee. Thy scripture is so rich with meaning and comfort. We thank Thee for fulfilling this text in the birth, growth, death, and resurrection of our Savior. And may that, Father, strengthen our faith on this Sabbath day that we might go home feeling truly rested and refreshed in the gospel, that we may have peace and joy in our inner man and in all our relationships and circumstances. And as we get busy again this week in the work of building, whatever that might mean for us, may we be encouraged to labor with diligence, looking to the branch as a source of all our